Mindfulness Mode 474. A very small percentage of people actually get to meet their donor family. And in my instance, they contacted me and invited me to what would have been Bryce's high school graduation. Welcome to Mindfulness Mode. I'm Bruce Langford, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach. Great to have you with us today. Before I tell you about today's episode, I want to tell you about a tool that I've been using recently to help me with my social media. And it's a tool that can help you schedule social media posts and it can help you organize your social media. It's called Meet Edgar. You can try it out by going to mindfulnessmode.com slash Edgar, E-D-G-A-R. And uh, you can actually get the second month free. You get the first month free already. And if you go to that link, you'll get the second month free. Now, for today's interview, this one just totally moved me. I mean, I have not ever talked to someone before who has gone through what my guest today has gone through. It must have been incredibly traumatic. So he went through surgeries. He's had diabetes. I'll tell you all about it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this inspirational interview. Mindful Tribe, I'm here with a person who has an incredible story and he's a terrific storyteller as well. And wow, does he have one incredible story to tell. Like I said, he was diagnosed at the age of 17 with juvenile diabetes. And then his story unfolds from there. I'm with the incredible Jim Stavis. Jim, are you in mindfulness mode today? Talking to you, I am. (laughs) how could i not be how could i not be (laughs) of course well i'm really excited to talk to you about what mindfulness means to you and i know just having the little chat before i hit record that that mindfulness might mean some different things to you but i want to share a little bit more about you your early diagnosis of juvenile diabetes served to motivate you to take action towards success both in business and in life. And Jim started a business, he got married, he had a family, knowing that he may not live past the age of 50, as he was told. When he was in his 40s, it became apparent he would need a rare triple organ transplant to replace not only his heart, but his kidney, his kidneys and pancreas. And now it's 14 years later and Jim promotes organ donation and has developed a true understanding of how to overcome such great adversity. He's written a book, which is incredible. It's called When Hope is Your Only Option. And he's also a frequent speaker and he's featured in a documentary that you just really need to see called Source of Hope. So Jim, what does mindfulness mean to you? What what is it in your life? Well, it's an interesting term. It's not something that I think I was that familiar with originally, but in my own way, it's something that I've embraced and that I speak about. I just never used the term mindfulness. You did a very nice job of paraphrasing my life going back when I was 17 years old and diagnosed with diabetes with a pretty pretty horrible um diagnosis in terms of how it was going to affect me and how it was going to shorten my lifespan. 
So knowing all that, I felt like I had a decision to make in that, was I going to let that diabetes define my life? And was I going to be afraid to kind of move forward? Or conversely, I could use it as a motivator to kind of get my life going at a younger age and just realize that hopefully medical technology would have an answer for me later on, which it ultimately did. So I was very fortunate in in many ways. But I think I realized through the journey that this was really more than just my journey. In a way, I, I was kind of taking a lot of people along for the ride. And it was that process that I think made me realize that there was this mindfulness going on. And it wasn't just something that I was kind of doing for myself. There was a much bigger picture here. And in doing that, it kind of brought me to a higher purpose. And that purpose was ultimately so that I could share this story with others, inspire others, and and use it as a bit of a platform so that other people could get through their own adversity, which is ultimately where I'm at right now. It's the reason for the book, the reason for the documentary, and uh, it's a great story. I'm happy to tell it. Yeah, it really is a great story. When you first had your pancreas replaced and began to heal up and you no longer had diabetes, how did that feel? What was that like? Of the three organs, the heart, the kidney, and the pancreas, the pancreas was probably the most liberating of the three. I had remembered having a good heart and kidney. I couldn't remember having a functional pancreas since mine hadn't worked for over 30 years. So when I did get the pancreas transplant, it was really a liberating event for me to be able to live a kind of a normal life, free of diabetes. I could eat whatever I wanted to. I didn't have to test my blood sugar anymore. And it was uh, it was like being at a kid in a candy store, so to speak. Yeah, that must have been amazing. The donor of your heart and kidney was a 17-year-old high school student named Bryce. And I mean, I can only imagine the emotions that you felt knowing your heart once belonged to Bryce and also his family and his parents. Tell us about that. Well, it's a unique story in that a very small percentage of people actually get to meet their donor family. And in my instance, they contacted me and invited me to what would have been Bryce's high school graduation. And so I traveled about 100 miles away and met the family. And it was a very surreal experience. They called out his name and balloons were released. And I had quite a little moment with the parents. And then we went off to witness where his accident, it was in a car accident, Mm-hmm. the site of the accident. And then we went to the the funeral or the cemetery where uh, he had been laid to rest. So it was, it was kind of a surreal experience and the, their entire family had to listen to his heart beating inside my chest, which was right. pretty unusual as well. Yeah. On the documentary, it shows his mother touching your chest and listening to your heart, which was his heart. I mean, it's very heart-wrenching to see and experience that. It's a pretty incredible situation. Again, I I speak to a lot of 
recipients and donors. And there are so many donors that are kind of jealous in a way that they never had the chance to in, engage with the recipients like I have with my donor family. So I, I feel very fortunate to have been able to do that. Why don't you think that happens more often? I think that for everyone, they treat it differently and that you can't bring the person back. So yes. in some ways, it's a disappointment. It's a reminder. So to be with the recipient, all it's doing is kind of maybe, I don't want to say rubbing salt in the wound, but it's a reminder of a, the loss of somebody that was so dear to you. So I understand that. I, I think that it's an individual choice. I look at the donor family as being incredibly courageous just to donate organs in the first place. And so I kind of respect their time and I pretty much will spend as much time with them as they want. Well, you know, it was, it was fantastic watching the documentary, which is called Source of Hope. Now, if I remember right, I think in the documentary, wasn't it Bryce's brother that said he is a donor? You're, you've got a very good memory. Yes. Bryce's brother had a friend who had passed. And in the process, they had donated, they had agreed to donate his organs. And, and Bryce, at the time, heard this story and said to those that were around him, that's a great story. If I was ever to pass, I would want to be an organ donor as well. Oh, wow. It's crazy to think that in, in short order, that actually came to pass. But that was a, an unusual circumstance that the family granted his wish when he passed. And what did his brother donate? What organ? Well, his brother was not the one that passed. It was a friend of his brother's. That I passed. see what you mean. I see. So, so, so when when he heard that story, he had told his brother, "That's a great I thing. See. I would like to do that if that was if something were to ever happen to me." Right. I see. Yeah, because it's just for a moment in the documentary that they refer to it. Yeah. So you have two daughters and a son, Jessica, Ashley, and Brian. What has this transplant journey been like for them? Well, it's interesting because their their ages are similar to Bryce. Right. My son was very close in age to Bryce. So Bryce's story is one that my son certainly could relate to being of the same age. And I remember when he was a new driver and he understood when he was asked the question, do you want to be an organ donor? Obviously, it had special significance to him because he realized that, you know, most 16-year-olds have never been confronted with this question and have no idea. But my son had 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 uh, watching my journey. He had a right. whole different reason for caring. Right. But it, for overall, the all three of my kids have been greatly impacted by this story. Obviously, yeah, I'm I'm sure they must have been. Well, you know. In your book, which is called When Hope is Your Only Option, you have some great stories and you have a very powerful way of telling those stories that just come right off the page. I mean, the book is just so impactful. But one of your stories is about when you're visiting Camp Bruin Woods in Southern California at Lake Arrowhead. Can you share a little bit of that story with us? Well, it was kind of a defining moment in my life. In fact, it's, it's how I start the book telling that story, which was 
I went to UCLA and UCLA is a family camp every year up in Lake Arrowhead, which is kind of in the mountains of Los Angeles. And we were there for with the family and with another close friend of ours and his family. And we were doing, I mean, the one thing that I never wanted to do is let my diabetes stand in the way of me enjoying life and you know, mm-hmm. taking advantage of whatever I could do. And so we were up in the mountains on a, what's called a ropes course, which is a kind of a, you're doing military type events, team building, climbing trees, swinging on ropes, things of this sort. And we were doing it together as a family. And at the end of the day, on the last event, I would climb a pole 20 feet in the air. And then I would have to basically swing on to a rope. Um, and I, fortunately, I was in a harness. And I got to the top of the pole. And I was looking out in the vista and just noticing how beautiful everything was. And my friends were yelling up, are you okay up there? And I yelled down, yeah, it's the most beautiful thing. It's the most beautiful setting I've ever seen. And then all of a sudden, the colors went to black and white. The volume was turned down and I fainted. Wow! So here I was in a group of people, family members, friends, my best friend in life. And they lowered me to the ground. And we were a good hour or so away from any kind of medical facility. So it took a while for an ambulance to come up. So meanwhile, my friend who was kind of jumped into action and gave me mouth-to-mouth mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And it took about 30 minutes and I was revived before the ambulance got there. So it was my first cardiac event. And um, fortunately, a lot of times your first one is your last one. Yes. As they call it, sudden death. But Mm -hmm. for me, um, I was revived. They brought me back down the hill. And um, ultimately, I had one artery, which was 95% blocked, Uh which which, um, fortunately, had this occurred, let's say, the day before when I was hiking on my own, Mm -hmm. uh, there wouldn't have been anybody there to to see to it that I would have been saved. So I, I view it as kind of a blessing of sorts that when it happened, I was high in the air with a whole bunch of people down below working on my behalf. Right. And was there any problem with any of the valves in your heart? It wasn't, a, it wasn't so much a valve problem. The, the problem was my whole cardiovascular system was impacted by the diabetes. So the quality of my vessels, arteries was just not very good. I see. And so, and that was just a byproduct of the years of the diabetes taking its toll on my, on my uh, cardiovascular system which is common. And that's why they say that the lifespan is shortened as much as it is. I had, when the doctor did the, the angioplasty, which is where they put a balloon in your uh, artery, the doctor said, I did the best I could, but he's a diabetic. So there's only so much I can do, which was a pretty depressing consultation or, or event because he saved my life, but at the same time, his, his diagnosis wasn't very positive. So it was at that point that I decided that I needed to find 
a doctor, a cardiologist who would champion my case because clearly this doctor was not very positive. And it sent me out looking for an answer for somebody that could hopefully have an answer to my problem. And ultimately, I saw a doctor who said, what do you think about transplant? And I thought, transplant? I I have no idea. I'd never thought of it before. And he says, I think you'd be an excellent candidate. You're young, relatively speaking, and you're healthy in every other regard. And um, I think that you would be a very good candidate. So he referred me to Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Southern California, one of the major transplant hospitals we have on the West Coast. And they formulated a plan, which was to do the heart, kidney, and ultimately pancreas. Right. That must have been such an incredibly, well, I guess you would have had a lot of mixed emotions at that time, knowing that you could potentially have this surgery. Is that right? I was pretty up for it, to be honest with you. I think it goes back to that conversation that we started with when I was 17 years old. And I sat in the doctor's office and he gave me this grim forecast. And I I kind of have always embraced kind of a positive attitude and also an attitude that if things are meant to happen, then they're going to happen. And and that, you know, sense of fatalistic optimism, which is what I call it, kind of was my guiding force. Um, an interesting story and one that I think really is a good one for your audience is when I was being evaluated for transplant, because it's a big deal. It's a big surgery. In, my, in this case, there were three teams that had to work together to make it all work. And so you're, you've got a lot going on with the hospital. There's a lot going on with the whole process. You've got to get donated organs, coordinated. It's, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of effort that has to come together in order for this to happen. So they're, they're interviewing me with a social worker. And they're asking me a battery of questions to see if I'm a good candidate. And, and I'm answering the questions. I'm kind of rolling my eyes through most of them. And then the social worker asked me this one question, which is, what is your source of hope? And I thought, well, that's an interesting question. What's my source of hope? And I thought, well, you know, the easy answer would be, it's my family or it's my faith. I really wanted to think about that because, you know, I I had never been asked that question before. And I thought, well, what is my source of hope? I mean, you have to have hope because if you don't have hope, you don't have life. And it made me kind of go through the process of evaluating, you know, where does this sense of optimism come from? Where do I, why do I believe what I believe? And I think that in some ways, it was the beginning of this mindfulness mode that we're talking about and that it forced me to evaluate, you know, what was important to me and and had it what was driving me to get to this point and beyond. The answer that I came to is is kind of what I told you before in that if I was meant to live, I would live. And if I was meant to die, I would die. Secondly. I think that I've been pretty fortunate that good things had really always happened to me. And that, so I had kind of a positiveness that 
was a driver that I believe that why sh- why should it not continue to be positive because it always had been in the past. And I think that that's the way I was raised. You know, I think that my my parents' orientation was very positive. They had gone through their own adversity and you know learned what it was like to come out on the other end. So for me, it really was a I suppose a, an an awareness of how I got here and how I was going to use this going forward to rise above the adversity. So Jim, you got involved in the steel industry. Your company is Paragon Steel. What moved you toward getting involved in that area of business? Well, I started out when I was young. Again, I started out as when I was pretty much before I was in college. I I started a company with another fellow in the automotive aftermarket business. And the the business, which started in a garage, ultimately became pretty successful. And 16 years later, we had a big manufacturing facility in LA. We were the largest muffler manufacturer west of the Mississippi, which at that time was a lot of mufflers. Right. And uh, we bought a lot of steel. So I got to know the industry, the steel industry. And one of the guys that I knew turned out to be my partner in Paragon Steel. I was deciding that I wanted to start something new uh, and different. And he was looking to start his own steel company. So we we kind of held hands and back in 1988, started Paragon Steel. And it's been a successful business. We've had ups and downs, but you know, through it all, through all of my health adversity and and unfortunately my partner passed away five years ago and that was an adversity as well but um we're st- i'm still here <laughs> so and I'm has there been to- a change in the way you've done your job and the way you've worked with your teams at paragon steel as a result of the transplants yes i would say on many levels again i i think earlier i said that um this has been a journey that I've been on that's been more than just my story. It's, it's, it's inspired a lot of other people along the way. And I think it's shown people that there's more to life than just selling a little steel. I mean, everybody's got their own realities. And you, know, you may not have adversity right now, but at some point in your life, you know, we all go through challenging times and it's how you rise above that that kind of separates you from the other folks and so i think that in some ways everybody here gets that and i've tried to use my mission as becoming a bit of a mission for the company so i'd say in some ways we operate at a higher level that's really cool your book called When Hope is the Only Option, When Hope is Your Only Option, is great. What website can we send listeners to? Well, the book actually has its own website, which is www.whenhopeisyouronlyoption.com. Okay. But I also have a jimstavis.com website that I, that I put blogs on, and you can access the videos that you were talking about earlier. As well as I have a Facebook page, Jim Stavis Speaks, which which highlights some of the speaking 
opportunities that I that I engage in as well. Jim Stavis speaks on Facebook, jimstavis.com. And Stavis is S-T-A-V-I-S, jimstavis.com. So yeah, check it out. I want to ask you a question about bullying because I've worked in that field for a long time. Have you ever been a bully or have you ever been bullied? Do you have a story that you can share with us that pops into your mind? You know, I thought about it. I, I saw that that was one of your um, topics and yeah. I can't really speak to it in that I've never really been confronted with bullying myself. Mm hmm. And I don't, I wouldn't say that my kids have necessarily been affected by it. The only thing that I can say that's kind of relates a little bit is that when I was diagnosed with diabetes, again, at 17, I was really conscious of wanting to continue to fit in to the norm. I didn't want to stand out. I didn't want to be associated as being different. And in some ways, that wasn't a good thing because what it did is it prevented me from kind of taking, you know, kind of uh, grabbing the diabetes by the throat and, and looking at it for what it was. In some ways, I was in a little bit of a denial state, which didn't do me any favors when I was young because with a disease like that, the more you ignore it, the more harm you do to yourself. Right. So, so I was very conscious of how I was being perceived so that I wouldn't stand out. And, you know, that was, again, not, not something I'm proud of, but it was something that I'm very aware of. So did you go ahead and eat a lot of desserts and, and yes. processed sugars and things yes. like that, processed foods yeah. with sugar as, and all that kind of thing? As my friends did, you know, we'd yeah, go out right, of course. and yeah. we'd have fast food and we'd have dessert. And I was right there with them. And, and at the, the reality was I shouldn't have been. I should have been, right. you know, I think today people are a little more accepting of yeah. when people are different. Back then, it, it, there was, you know, kind of a real desire to want to just fit in and to pretend that you didn't, you weren't different. Yeah, and I think diabetes was more rare, wasn't it? Back then, absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah. it's five times more prevalent today than yes. it was back then. And and I think that it's important note for your audience is that if you have diabetes today, your chances of having a normal life are much better. You're not going down a path where you're going to have to have a triple organ transplant. Right. Whereas back in the 1970s, uh, the technology for diabetic management wasn't nearly what it is today. Sure. Yeah. They didn't have the pumps and all this, all these other That's ways correct. of delivering the insulin, That's, did they? We didn't even have monitors for our blood. That's just really hard to believe. We didn't even have a testing equipment. Oh, you didn't so even used, have testing no, equipment? No, we used to have a little strip that you would pee on and oh. then you'd match the stick to see what the levels of ketones were in your urine. And that determined, helped you determine how your glucose levels were. So it was oh, really wow. very archaic. When you look wow. back on it today, it was yes. like, they, we, didn't, we didn't even have sugar-free foods back then. Right. So 
unless you were into tab, which many people don't even know what that is. Oh so, yeah, kind of soda. <laughs> right? Yeah. So so even the options back then as as in terms of diabetic management were not what it is today. So when you wrote your book, was it difficult? Was it challenging? Did it bring all of this right back into the forefront? It did. It did. And some of the chapters, quite frankly, were really brutal for me to relive. It was I can uh, imagine. It was not easy. I mean, on some levels, I found that I wrote, I would write a chapter and then I, I worked closely with this woman who assisted me and she would read it and she'd say, no, I want more. I want, you need to go deeper. And right. I'd say, okay, okay, I'll, yeah. I'll go in deeper. But, you know, it was, so there was, you know, she was all about vulnerability. You need to be willing to be vulnerable. And for me, it was hard. That was, that was a, that was a difficult way for me to be is to open myself up like that. Well, I'm sure glad you did, because I think it's it's been a gift to thousands and thousands and thousands of people to learn about your life and your struggles and how you you moved through them. It wasn't easy, but in some ways, you just seem to have this driving determination. I do. I've been very fortunate. I think that probably the two things that the transplants have impacted me the most. Uh, the first is perspective in that uh, when you come close to dying, it really does change your view of living. And the second is um, the gratitude that I have of having gone through all of this and that I, I'm still here today to tell the story is very gratifying and uh, kind of counting my blessings along the way. Yeah, for sure. As we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions, Jim. And the first one is this. So just 30 second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? I would say in many ways, it's my wife. My wife, who's who's been an incredible supporter of mine, as well as co-pilot in this, this journey that I've been on. But in many ways, she's kept me grounded. And, and when I say that, she's a child of Holocaust surviving parents. And so I think that she's been through her own survival story. She grew up with it. And so I probably couldn't have picked a better partner to go through my journey with. What was interesting is that when I would write my book or when I would speak, because she was raised with parents that perhaps brushed this stuff under the carpet and didn't really want to promote it. Right. She would ask me, why is it that you want to promote this? What, what is, what's your motivation to do it? And I, and I said, it's not about me. It's about helping others. Right. And so I think in some ways that has had a big influence on the way that I look at my, my story and how it's impacted others. Yeah, for sure. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? It's affected it in many ways. On one level, I don't have the fear that I once did. And I also have an incredible amount of resilience, obviously. And it's given me great perspective. It's a great, great perspective in, in terms of what I've been able to accomplish and 
the kind of impact that I've been able to make on others. So tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness, or if it is. I think, I don't know that I would define it as breathing per se. I'm very aware because of my health right. that I've, you know, the, the saga that I've been through, I'm actually very aware of my heart, which I, bet. I know that probably sounds odd. But it doesn't to me. Okay, because I'm aware just of the beating of my heart because for a while I didn't really, I couldn't even hear the, the beating of my heart. And since the transplant, I'm actually very aware of my heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's, it signifies life. And it's, it's, it's really a kind of a, a way of um, representing the fact that I'm still here today and able to you know, live as I'm living. Do you very often think of Bryce and how your heart was once beating in his body? I certainly did in the beginning. I, I find that as, you know, the, it's now been 14, nearly 15 years, right. it'll be in a few months. So the further that I get away from the, the actual surgery itself, probably the less that I actually think about Bryce per se. But I don't want to say that in deference to him. I, I, I still have a relationship with his parents. Yeah. We do a lot together a couple times a year. So, um, you know, Bryce, Bryce and his family will always be a big part of my life. If you could recommend a book which is related to mindfulness or mindset or anything along these lines, what would that be? Well, a book that always... I've always liked was The Alchemist, which is kind of a fable story. Yes. I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Which yes, I am. I, I really liked that story. I, I, I garnered a lot from it, and um, I just liked the way it was, you know, kind of a simple, simple story of a journey. And, and I, I would say that that would be my answer. Can you share an app which helps you in any way to be more mindful? I don't think that I have an app. No, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I mean, my 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 children would probably be more a better. That'd be a better question for them than perhaps for me. Sure, and that's perfectly fine too. Absolutely. Well, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show, Jim. And jimstavis.com is where you can go, and you can also go to the website where the book is when hope is your only option.com. Thank you so much for being here on Mindfulness Mode, Jim. Well, I've enjoyed sharing with you. Thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. All the best to you. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. 
So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. So remember what I said at the top of the show about Meet Edgar and how that tool can help you with your social media content so much. Check it out and get, like I said, the second month free. You already get the first month free. Get the second month free with this with this uh, URL. Go to mindfulnessmode.com forward slash Edgar, E-D-G-A-R. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep mindfulness mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.